I felt like I wanted to be a police officer, but I didn't want to be a cop in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota or that type of place. I want to do real police work, you know, in a big department. We're facing DFW, we see smoke. As they said, there's a plane down at DFW. And the debris field was a half a mile long. I mean, it was insane. And think about the worst major car accident you've ever seen and multiply it by a hundred. You know, I mean, the, there was one seat and I picked up the seat and there's a young girl, I'm going to say 10, except I didn't even know there was anybody in the seat because her arms and legs are gone. And what happens to people in that kind of carnage is just what most people should never have to see, you know, but that's law enforcement, right? Every cop sees that in some You know, I remember one time my mom came down the road with me. I was going to take her back to the station after dinner, and somebody got called on a family disturbance, and, and they needed cover. And I was like, hold on, Mom, we got to go. And that night I went back to the apartment, and she was there, and she's like, I didn't even know who you were. She goes, that, that wasn't my son. She goes, you know, of course, she's seeing me as her little boy. You know, I was the youngest in the family. If you're a cop, Dallas, Texas, you're going to see things and be involved in things that civilians just can't even comprehend. And it's really hard to, it's really hard to explain. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge, we divide. All right, welcome back. I think Joe, you used this last time. The uh, what'd you say? The BTD. It's very hard to use the B and the D at the end. The BTD. BTD yeah. Nation. <laughs> Want to welcome uh, our fellow co-hosts here. We got Randy, Joe, and Misty in here, and we're going to introduce our next guest. It's an honor for us to have him on here. He is one of the founders of the Assist the Officer Foundation. He. Uh, Retired as a senior corporal with the Dallas Police Department after 34 years of service. He was assigned to many different assignments such as Northwest Patrol, the Academy, Narcotics, that would include the FBI Task Force, the DEA Task Force, Personnel Division, as a background detective. Um, I've heard nothing but good things about him while he was here. So without further ado, we're going to introduce Tom Popkin. Tom, thanks for coming on and welcome. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you. I, uh, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's like coming back home, you know, coming down to DPA and the SIST office and seeing uh, everybody 
you know, people still here that from when I was here, even when I left in 2013, but city changes a lot since, uh, since I left. So thanks for having me. Tom, it's an honor. Um, when I got to the Academy in, in 97, you were like on the way out, but you, we were really glad to miss your class because you had the reputation of being an extreme hard ass. And we had Mumford who didn't like to do cardio and we didn't want to have to deal with him. And we knew your reputation before we even got there because I had some friends that were already in the academy a few classes ahead of me that, yeah, talking about your intensity. And when I met you, the first thing I noticed was it was your eyes, your intense, piercing eyes that cut right through you. Well, thank you. You know, I, uh, <laughs> were you in 252? Was that I was class? 252, yeah. I, I remember that because uh, my class was 159. I'd really hoped I could make it to 159 before I left. But, uh, you know, that the Academy was the most rewarding time in my whole career, right? Um, I, and I, I wanted it. well, not I, we that were there at my time wanted to be intense. We wanted people to graduate and go out into field training and be able to say, hey, I earned the right to be here. I didn't, nobody gave this to me. That's why we used to give the old PT test that old timers took. So um, recruits could say they did that. They didn't just take the Cooper test, which was truthfully considerably easier, probably a better measurement, but it was easier. Um, so yeah, well, I'm proud that uh, I had that reputation. Tom, what was the old PT test? Oh, boy. Let's see. It was push-ups, sit-ups, straddle chins. Remember kind of pull-ups when you're laying on the ground? That sounds nice. Burpees. Yeah, burpees. <laughs> I think it was a two-mile run instead of a mile and a half. And, of course, there was no body fat measurement or any of that. But uh, there was only a minute rest between each exercise. So if you go out there, I'm assuming the... It's still out there. Used to be records for the old PT test. In fact, they were down when I got out there, and I put them back up. And uh, so when recruits took the old test, they could measure themselves kind of against history. And um, it was a challenge to score over a hundred on that test. It really was. Do you remember who had the best, the highest score for the longest time? <sighs> Boy, now, now I can't think of his name. How about as a female? Well, when I left, it was, oh, my God, it's class 237. I'll remember that. I'll think of his name. Well, didn't Gloria Bettis have a real, I thought she had a real low score. I remember, because she was our one of our class sergeants. Sergeant. That, yeah. So yeah. We, so she was a coordinator, but I remember people talking about seeing her name on there, and that was a big surprise to a lot of us. But if you don't recall, then. Yeah, I, I can see his face, and I, I'm almost 65, so. Five minutes, I'll, I'll pop it out, you know. Yeah, put perspective to that for those of you that are out there, probably younger people listening right now. Uh, Tom graduated with class 159 in December of 1979. I was four. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so you've been around. It's crazy now, you know, our friend Mike Yurk was here, and, you know, a lot of the people, Chris Webb, yeah. that – I taught at the academy, are retiring, and it's crazy to think about that I was teaching kids that are retiring now, but on the other hand, it's also very rewarding. I mean, to think, if I tried to list all the names, Chris is such a great example since you just had him on the show, to think I had any part 
in five minutes in, five and a half minutes in it. <laughs> think I had any part to make a cop like that? It's pretty rewarding. Well, he's really excited to uh, to hear your episode. Uh, he and I were texting back and forth this morning about it. Um, I want to hear about your early career and how you ended up in Dallas, Texas, from sleepy-eyed Minnesota. And how, how was that a culture shock for you? Oh, my God. Well, you can imagine sleepy-eyed Minnesota. At the time I lived there was about 2,400 people. And, uh, of course, like most uh, good cops, I think I got in some trouble when I was younger and uh, had some incidents with the local police. And, uh, but I'd, I'd read books like Serpico and Joseph Wamba stuff, The Onion Field. And so early on, I was like, I, I felt like I wanted to be a police officer, but I didn't want to be a cop in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota or that type of place. I didn't want to chase high school kids around for drinking beer. You know, I wanted to, like, reading Serpico, I was like, I want to do real police work, you know, in a big department. Um, so when I graduated from college, I, I went almost all the way around the country and applied Kansas City, Dallas, I mean, Las Vegas, all big agencies that I could, you know, think of. And even at the time, Dallas had the uh, three-day application procedure, you know. So pretty much when I left here, provided I passed background, I was in, you know. And so when they offered me the job, other I knew about the Cowboys and Kennedy was killed here. That's right. all I knew about Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Two big things. Yeah. Here. So when, when I read Tom's bio, I thought this was Joe being funny. That's the name of the town, <laughs> Sleepy Eye. Yeah. Okay. That's no knock on Sleepy Eye. I was just like, man, Joe. <laughs> no, that's actually. He's not that funny. Or no, I'm not that funny. No, I try. You're witty. That's yeah. I thought that was a little wit in there. Yeah. Like, no. Okay. Like a, poor Tom. No. <laughs> did you not? Did you try for uh for NYPD? No, I didn't go to New York. Really? Yeah. No, no I didn't no go to New York. Well, part of the reason was some of those agencies like New York, they offer the test, you know, civil service test, and you got to wait, whatever, three or four months, and go back. And it was like, that's, man, I'm going to have to take four or five trips to New York to apply. Right, yeah. And even if I had by that time, you know, I, to truthful, at the time, I hated Dallas because Dallas Cowboys played the Vikings all the time in the playoffs. And they, and and they never did anything against the Cowboys. <laughs> no. Down yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but then when they offered me the job, I was like, well, I got to take this job. What if I don't get another offer, you know? And, of course, it ended up, you know, being the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, came to Dallas to get my wife. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was truly a blessing. And, you know, as I think back of me going through the academy and the group of people that I met, the friends that I made, uh, just an unbelievable experience. It did so much for me in my life. Um, the relationships, it's just uh, great, great memories. How old were you when you showed up here? I was 22 when I graduated from the academy. And to say I knew nothing about anything is a vast, vast understatement. I mean, you can, I can remember the very first night. Of course, back then we were still in ties and hats. And uh, 
so the very first night we leave detail and we go to a Howard Johnson's there at 35 in Commonwealth and we get in there and there must be 20 cops in there I'm working deep nights and there's one seat next to this redheaded lady so I sit down nobody's talking to me so finally I thought well I can't be rude so I introduce myself to this lady and she <laughs> She goes, well, I'm the dragon lady, and she reaches over and grabs my crotch and squeezes until I scream, and then the whole <laughs> place, cops jumped up and ran out, and I'm thinking to myself, man, this is going to be fun. This is going to be a blast. I, I think I met her daughter at some point. Well, you dragon probably Lady's did. Daughter. She was quite famous back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it threw me off. That like that. <laughs> So well, you... I think we left there, and I think as soon as we got outside, somebody put on an assist, you yeah. know, and we're going 100 miles an hour down the freeway. I'm holding on to my hat. I'm thinking, man, am I in for a ride? This is going to be fun. So where, where did you start when you were put out there, out in the streets? Well, at Northwest, and my Northwest. first okay. training beat would have been like, well, at the time, it was Industrial Boulevard, Harry Hines. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. It's Market Center now. And, of course, back in those days, the prostitutes were just thick. And, and I never seen a prostitute in my life. And I can remember driving on the street. I'm going, There's Dragon Lady. oh, my God, she, she dressed <laughs> just like somebody on TV, you know. Mm. I have so many, yeah. so many stories about being naive and going over. At, at the time, West Dallas was the largest housing project in the city. So we obviously spent a lot of time over there. And I tell this story all the time is like, we go to a family disturbance and, you know, uh, the guy's gone. Mom's there with like five kids. So my trainer's like, okay, get everybody's name. So I do. And I come back out to the car and he looks at my face. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm just really confused. He goes, what are you confused about? I'm like, all those kids had different last names. And he's like, you're kidding me, right? I go, no, I'm, I don't, how's that possible? I have no concept. Because Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, it's mom and dad, brothers and sisters. Did you remind him that's where you're from? I, on a daily basis, yeah. It's like, this is what you're dealing with, so. Tom, so you, you were at Northwest, and then how long did you work out in the streets there? Well, I went to, I transferred to the academy in 1990. Um, okay. After I was a class advisor in 1989, so I went out to the academy for that class, class 210. And then uh, after that, of course, back then, if you were an advisor, you got to pick the three rookies from your class that you wanted to train. Wow. Uh, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Cool. yeah, it was it was really, really fun. So I went back and trained those three, and then they asked me to come back to the academy full time. And I, I, to be honest with you, I really struggled with it because... I didn't ever join the police department to have an administrative job. Um, but as it turns out, that was the best decision I ever made. And uh, I, I struggled making that decision. But Yeah, um, I want to get into your academy career. But I want to talk about an incident that, that, uh, that you were involved with on in August 2nd, 1985. And one thing I like to do 
with uh, with this podcast is to bring up a lot of history in the Dallas area. You know, everybody knows Kennedy assassination, the Cowboys, and and seven seven. Um, but I didn't even know about this. There was a Delta flight one ninety one that crashed uh, flying into Dallas from Florida. The schedule make a quick stop in Dallas and continue to Los Angeles. Uh, Lockheed TriStar encountered a microburst and lost control on its descent and crashed about a mile past the runway. The plane collided with a car and two water tanks near the runway, and the plane disintegrated. It rolled across 114. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, there was 137 deaths. 26 people were injured. Uh, most of the people that survived that were just injured were in the rear of the... Uh, of in the tail section. Yeah. NTSB determined that the crash resulted from a crew's decision to fly through a thunderstorm. Um, I was reading the transcript from the black box recording. You know, I'm just going to give a couple of excerpts from it. The captain told his co-pilot as, as the rain started pouring in, he was heard saying, you're going to lose it all of a sudden. There it is. Push it up all the way up. Seconds later, he says, that's it. Hang on to the son of a bitch. And all hell broke loose. And the plane never recovered from that uh, after that recording. The plane began rolling across 114 and struck a Toyota and killed the driver. Uh, fire, began, fire began engulfing the cabins uh, as it was still rolling. One, a survivor described several other passengers trying to escape but were sucked back into the plane. They unbuckled themselves and they got pulled back into the fire. One, one side note that I thought was really interesting, the, the, this crash resulted in the longest trial in aviation history to this day. And, you know, because it sounds like the, they were warned to fly into that storm and then they disregarded it and the micro, it hit the microburst. Sure. And, and that's actually the same thing that happened in 2009 when that crane hit in the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. That, that's the same, the microburst. And it's, it's just a force of nature that you, know, you can't really prepare for. Can you describe that scene? You were one of the first responders to that scene. And from patrol, can you describe from when you got the call to what you saw when you got there? Well, what's interesting about that is most Dallas people will know back at that time, I mean, DFW is not in the city of Dallas. Um, so we really had no reason to be out there. But my partner and I, Alan Butler, um, of course, like most good street cops, we were hunting dopers like everybody else. And so we were set up out on that part of Northwest Highway, which goes right into 114. We saw a car go by that we recognized, and we got on him. And he was hauling, so he got up on 114. We're chasing him out 114, finally get him stopped. And uh, we had the Good Times radio on with the police radio, listening to the Rangers game. And... Uh, we get up to the car to talk to the guy, and all of a sudden the rain just, bam, it just hits. And we're like, screw this, you know, threw his driver's license back in, jumped back in the car because we didn't want to get wet. And we, you know, we're facing DFW, and we see smoke. We're like, what the hell? And then right away on the Rangers broadcast, they said there's a plane down at DFW. Of course, we're right there because we're way out on 114 so we hauled out there the last couple miles and the first thing we see is the car on 114 going the opposite way so i guess it would be south or east and it's just flattened because the the landing gear hit that car so we drive by it thinking well there's nobody that survived out of that you know so we pull into the ups area there kind of where the wreck happened and there was nobody there 
the DFW hadn't got there yet. DPS wasn't there. Um, and we had no idea what to do on a plane crash. What? So yeah. we thought, well, let's just run out in the field and look for people that may have survived. And when we got out there, the, the uh, tail section, which there's an engine in the tail section. If you look at the pictures, you can still, there were still people coming out of the tail section, which that tail section is, you know, 50 feet high, I mean, from the ground. And the debris field was, I don't know, a half a mile long. I mean, it was insane. And the only thing I can, cops get it, because the only thing you can do is say, think about the worst major car accident you've ever seen and multiply it by 100. You know, I mean, the what happens to people in that kind of carnage is just what most people should never have to see, you know, but that's law enforcement, right? Every cop sees that to some degree. So, um, but, and then after that, of course, DFW showed up and when DFW showed up, they had stretchers with flags and they're like, okay, go back out there. And if you pick somebody up, put the flag in where you got the body and bring it back. Um, you know, so there's photos and video of Alan and I bringing a stretcher back and, um, and by the end of it, we were there all night. Um, you know, there was, I mean, Denton, Sheriff, Denton, police, you know, Fort Worth, everybody was there by the end of it. So, yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty intense. You know, I still think about it sometimes in some of the stuff that saw from the accident. Yeah, the academy doesn't teach us <laughs> to deal with incidents like that. Um, did you interact with the, the survivors? You know, we. what's interesting is even though Alan and I, you know, and I'm doing this from memory, I, I don't, and he and I just had dinner not too long ago because uh, he got a new job. He was living in Colorado. He was moving, got a new job. Um, as we recall, we were the very first ones there. Um, so other than people that were coming out of the tail section, helping them get out of the way, um, and those few survivors, once they got out of the way, there wasn't anybody else to interact with other than, uh, the bodies, bodies. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the carnage, you know, I can remember there was one seat and I picked up the seat and there's a young girl, young black girl. I'm going to say 10, you know, except I didn't even know there was anybody in the seat because their arms and legs are gone. And, and uh, you're just like, oh, my God, you know, 10-year-old, you know, anything in police work, I've heard you guys talk about it before, and I think every officer, when it's a child, yeah. that's the ones that really tear you up. I mean, somehow adults, you can, if it's two dope dealers and one gets shot, you go, oh, well, you shouldn't have been a dope dealer. Yeah. But a child is always innocent, you know. and other stories too, uh, things that we saw. Yeah, it was it was uh, pretty nasty. That was the most horrific thing you've seen. Oh, your, by far. Yeah. yeah, by far. Yeah. While you were talking, I was just looking up the photos from that, um, and uh, you know that that's one of the things I wouldn't call it a gift, but it's something that when you become whether you're any type of first responder, whether that be medical profession, firefighter, police. You know, those are the things that uh, 
you, you just never know. You never know what you're going to crawl up on. You never know what you're going to see. You never know what you're going to have to digest later on in life or, or just right then and there. Um, when you got saw that, were you just awestruck or did you just go straight to work and kind of, I, I know you've never been on a plane wreck and they sure as hell don't teach you that in the academy. You can equate that to a car accident, but even major fatalities or a large car wreck out on the freeway, you know, that's like, where do you start, right? And then you see one thing and you see another, you want to help somebody and you just kind of have to filter through all that. What, what, what kind of was, what was going through your head at the time? Well, obviously the very first thing was like, let's get out there and look for survivors or anybody that we thought we could help from a medical perspective. But, you know, that was never a scenario we had in the academy, uh, for sure. Um, and, you know, you think, I, having listened to all the podcasts you've done, you know, thinking of, of Matt and what he went through in his career and then Chris and Misty's, it just, you know, I never had a gunfight my whole career. N never happened. But then again, Matt never had a plane crash. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it, if you're a cop anywhere, Dallas, Texas, Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, you're going to see things and be involved in things that civilians just can't even comprehend. And it's really hard to, it's really hard to explain, you know. Um, but you, you know, I remember one time my mom came down from Sleepy Eye and she rode with me. And I was going to take her back to the station after dinner and somebody got called on a family disturbance and she didn't have the sheets signed or anything, you know. And they needed cover. And I was like, hold on, Mom, we got to go. And we get there, we end up arresting the husband, blah, blah, blah. And that night I went back to the apartment and she was there. And she's like, I didn't even know who you were. I go, what do you mean? She goes, that, that wasn't my son. She goes, you go into this police mode. And, you know, of course, she's seeing me as her little boy. You know, I was the youngest in the family. But, uh, you know, you ju it's just the plane crash or anything, all these incidents you've interviewed about, it's, it's time to go to work. It's business time. And when it's business time, uh, you get your game face on and let's go. Did you have to testify in that, that trial? Well, that's really interesting because uh, did we go to the 25-year anniversary? Was that? Anyway, when they had the memorial out there, we never got called. Never were spoken to, nothing. We we didn't do anything, nothing wow. to do with that investigation. And I don't know, I, I don't know what we would have added to the investigation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, describe some of the carnage, I guess, if that would have helped. But um, yeah, we yeah we never were involved in the investigation. Okay. Uh, Tom, so. You know, I know you mentioned it, and that's something we all do. When it's time to go to work, you just go to work, right? A lot of times we do things that, whether it's via muscle memory or we've uh, captured another part of our brain that allows us to respond in a certain way. First of all, I don't know why you brought your mother on a call or on a ride along ever in the city of Dallas. Let's <laughs> yeah. start there. But well, we were supposed to be going to dinner. Okay. Yeah. Dinner in a squad car, yeah. city of Dallas. Nothing's going to go wrong, Mom. Anyway. Uh, no, but on a serious note, you know, you may have been in that mode right then and there, right? But over the years, have you had to think about that? Over the years, has that bothered you? Over the years, has that built up inside of you to a point to where this may have been part of your foundational piece to 
wanting to help other officers, not just from, I know, training sense. You know, you've, you've made an impact on several officers and probably more than you know with all the places you've been. But as far as getting into the ATO aspect of it and where your passion lie for that and how that was created and founded. But, you know, do you, you obviously deal with those thoughts now. Maybe, maybe you can speak on that and where that kind of led you from there. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think any officer can go through a critical incident like that or some of the others that have been described, 7-7 for sure. I mean, God, I could talk about that. I'm sitting in my living room in Colorado when 7-7 happens, and another officer formerly from Dallas, Greg Galazzi, was an Aurora, Colorado sergeant. He calls me. He's like, are you watching the news? I'm like, no, we never watch the news. Why would I be watching the news? He's like, you need to turn it on. So we turn the news on, and to see my uniform, my brothers and sisters is like, oh my God, I'm supposed to be there, you know? I you can't. You're like, I can't let them be there by themselves and not, you know, contribute not to be part of this. You know, obviously we couldn't be, but of course we left Dallas and or left Colorado the next morning and came here. But point is. You know, yeah, a critical incident like that, you don't ever forget about it. You kind of learn to live with it. And then, of course, that plane crash every year, the anniversary comes up and it's in the newspapers. And you think about what you saw or what you were involved in. And you learn to, you know, you learn to deal with it. I, I guess I am fairly lucky. You know, I'm not one of those people... Um, Eddie Fuller was just, and his wife were up at our house recently. He was a sergeant in SWAT and worked with him in patrol. He was a great, great, great cop, great guy. And he would be, don't you remember? It was 1983, and we were on Northwest Highway, and we had this doper. And I'm like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. You know, I just, I don't remember stories like that. So There's so many. Yeah, so many, and, and it, 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 I guess it's like a, a good quarterback in the NFL. I, I didn't want to take too much credit, and I didn't want to take too much blame, so uh, I kind of just block stuff out. Um, so, yeah, I think about it every periodically. I still have dreams about it, you know. Um, um, but it's that's a long time ago now, so, uh, you know. But And at the time, really, the department really didn't have anything to deal with those kind of issues. You know, hell, when I first hired on the police department, still, most of the guys were Vietnam veterans. Um, still, if they were involved in a critical incident or a shooting, they'd be like, well, I don't need an attorney out here. I didn't do anything wrong. And it took a long time to get people to go, you know what, you, you need an attorney out here before you say anything or do a walkthrough. Uh, but that was kind of the nature of the department back then. So. So you didn't receive any, like, psych therapy after that? No, nothing. Oh. Yeah. At Luke's Outhouse, a cold <laughs> yeah. beer, that was yeah. the psych therapy, yeah. You hired on the late 70s, so you got to work through the 80s. Did you see the transition when crack hit the city of Dallas? Yeah, I mean, boy, you know, um, I think Bobby Owens talked about it, and I listened yeah. to uh, Dickie's podcast. Mm -hmm. Or no, it was Bobby's podcast with Doug Kowalski. And in the 80s, the, the crack wars was, I mean, I don't remember what year it was, but we were at just over 500 homicides, I think, 
I mean, it was it was bad, and and the department was small then. I mean, relative, you know. Um, so yeah, everybody was running and gunning, and I had before I went to the academy. Uh, a lot of my friends, Keith Wenzel, Joey Fox, Eddie Fuller, uh, a lot more that I could think about. Uh, they all went to SWAT. So I was like, well, I'm going to SWAT. I mean, and at the time, they did, you had to put your name on a list, like a piece of paper in personnel. And they'd call you, and I, I had the academy on there, and I had SWAT on there. So I interviewed right about the same time, took the PT test for SWAT. But the academy called first. And it's kind of the same thing. as like, well, what if SWAT doesn't call me? You know, I, I guess I'm ready to go. All my buddies had left patrol. Uh, so I took the academy job, and sure as hell, right after that SWAT called, and then I was kind of getting settled in. I thought, well, I'll, I'll do the academy thing and go later. Um, just never quite worked out. So, Well, you made your mark at the academy. So what was your favorite part of working out there? You know, um, I think my favorite part was, of course, at the time, we had a big, big hiring push. Um, and we had over 300 recruits there at one time, like five classes going. Um, I think my favorite part was there would, every class there would be, you know, we had, we hired professional athletes on the Dallas police department. I'm, I mean, people that were physically gifted beyond what you could ever imagine and, you know, mentally tough and cocky to the extreme, meaning there's nothing I can't do. Um, and they were never really a challenge. But then you always had this group of people that you, they, were, they got hired, but they were like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this or not. They, they didn't have the confidence, and they, didn't, they weren't sure if they could be a cop. And to be able to get to those people and say, yes, you can. You can do this. You know. Um, and then at graduation, you know, they come up and shake your hand or give you a hug and say, thank you. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. That's pretty rewarding. You know, it's like being a coach was something I always wanted to do and never got to do being an actual coach, but being in the academy was, uh, that it, it was really, it was the most rewarding. It wasn't the most fun time, but it was the most rewarding time for me on the department. Well, you left a footprint. You, you all these officers that weren't, that you over, you know, overseeing, they had long careers. And I, I can't tell how many people that have, I mean, hell, even Mike Yerrick couldn't wait to get over here to, uh, you know, see you. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of those guys, Ruben Ramirez, I mean, yep. a lot of those guys are. Ruben's coming on, yeah, by the way. Chiefs, chiefs mm -hmm. on the department. Yep. I mean, Frederick Frazier, He's coming um, who I handed over the reins to assist the officer to, and Mike Mata. I mean, Randy, I, I, I go down the list, you know, and I'm so proud of all those people. There's a handful that slipped through the cracks and shouldn't have graduated, didn't deserve to graduate, but that was pretty rare, really, you know. Yeah, I think you touched on something, too, that most people don't think about is the impact that you've made on people, but the impact they've made on you as a person, you know which has allowed you to continue to do that. You know, I, I think that, uh, <clears throat> I think it's human nature. If you're, 
you can give so much and then once you see that what you've given has provided something for somebody then usually that fires something inside somebody else as well but the impact that people have had on you do you think that's shaped you throughout your life the impact you've given but seeing that you've helped these people how has that affected you oh i it's almost undescribable i mean uh the truth is, I think anybody knows, I, I know cops know, when you when you give whatever that may be, could be an arrest, could be uh, some type of small incident where you help somebody, it always gives back to you. It always, and it gives back to you greater than what you gave to it, you know. Um, and there's no question, you know, it impacted me. I mean, I'm. I'm so grateful for all the people that helped me on the department. And, you know, I said it when I was at the academy, is like do something uh, every day to make the organization better than it was when you found it. And they said that to me when I was in the academy. And and uh, I, I know all the it, – it's my sense of pride for not just the Dallas Police Department through teaching. I taught cops all over the country is like, it saddens me that the news media portrays law enforcement in the fashion that it does because it's so, so far from the truth. Um, uh, and they, they, the media just doesn't give credit to the men and women in law enforcement and what they do on a daily basis um, because law enforcement gives so much to so many every single day. And they don't seek credit for it. They just do it because it's their it's their job and so yeah it's it's been very very rewarding for me i'm so blessed really i am tom tell us about designing really much promoting the assist the officer program how it got started and because that's a huge impact that you've um right. yeah that you've pioneered for all of us we wouldn't be sitting here if it wouldn't. when you mentioned that there was no mental health for that plane crash and then you transition to July 7th, uh, assist the officer was here, and that's because of you. So tell us about it. Yeah, well, I'm going to make sure that everybody knows, you know, it's not really me. I mean, I was a, a part of it, you know. The, the truth is, and Glenn White doesn't get as much credit as he should. He was uh, president of the DPA at the time. And, of course, we had a really, really close relationship with Houston Police Officers Union, and and Houston actually was the one that they had assist the officer before we did. And we had a meeting. Of course, it's a tax-deductible foundation, and uh, they told us, the executive board of the DPA, what they were doing, and we were like, man, we should do that. You know, we should get this started here. We need this. And, you know, Bill Carollo, uh, my good friend, was the one that, you know, and E.J. Brown, E.J. did all the background work working with Bob Gorski, our law firm, who's still here with the DPA, to get all the foundation paperwork built and making it tax deductible. And, and uh, you know, Bill was the one that, you know, got it up and running. And, and uh, you know, when Bill and I were young police officers, Ron Escaro got shot in West Dallas. And, and uh, you know, after Ron got shot and he was, you know, part of his half of his body was you know permanently paralyzed he fought through it through rehab and 
But the city tried to get rid of him. You know, they tried to run him off because he couldn't be a uniform cop anymore. And then uh, later on, you know, David Rodriguez got shot, who was, you know, David Rodriguez, when he worked Northwest Patrol, he was the FTO guru. When the rest of us started training, everybody went to David and said, what do we do? How do we do this? And David was the one that everybody wanted to follow. So him being shooting, him being involved in a shooting, being paralyzed, we knew there was a need, but until Houston had really forged it, we didn't really know what that, how to do that need. And they, you know, they showed us and, and Bill and EJ and Glenn and, you know, they took off with it. And obviously my big part, I was on the board. Originally, Bill had asked me to be on the board. You know, and I, I never thought I would be anything more than that because Bill was my good friend and he was chairman of Assist. And, you know, lo and behold, he got, you know, killed by a DWI going the wrong way on 183. And uh, so it's like, oh, shit, you know, I guess I'm going to have to be in charge, you know. And so it kind of took off from there. And, and uh, you know, now to sit back and look at it and read about it and, um it's like a proud father, you know, to see what it is from where it was. I mean, when I took over, not Bill's fault, but we had no money. I mean, none. We didn't have virtually any fundraisers. Um, I mean, the Freedom Run was one of the very first ones, and he had a relationship with the ladies from Chi Omega Christmas Party. They were one of the first ones to step in, but even then, we really didn't have any money and we certainly didn't have the money to do confidential counseling which we started later on um oh yeah assist is a is a big big deal in my life yeah now you know we're a part of it now and we're kind of trying to follow in your footsteps what kind of challenges did y'all hit getting this off the ground this is a big program and, and i know whenever you try to start anything new it's not easy you get a lot of pushback and from different places and how what what did y'all deal with when it came to that well you know the 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 very first thing we had to deal with was selling it to our own people meaning yeah. the officers on the department that was the the first challenge we'd never had anything like this nobody knew what we were talking about or what we were going to do uh and in the beginning you know um course i don't know how it is now but in the beginning you know say misty would know of an officer that was in need misty would do the application for funding and the board would look at it and we'd approve it but we didn't have any money you know and so it kind of started where we'd do a cookout at the station or something you know and cops would just raise money to help cops we didn't have any fundraisers there was no golf tournament you know there was no carry the load for sure uh, but you know, cops by their nature are very suspicious. And so when you're starting something new to convince people to be a part of it and to be involved in it, and that this is going to be a positive thing, that was, that was the first big barrier is selling it to our own people. Yeah. Looking at it now, and I know you're, you're, you're retired, moved off, enjoying your life. Uh, but you you see what's going on now. You see what we're doing. How do you feel about the growth? And what direction do you would you like to see it go further in? 
You know, I think it's uh, I think it's going in exactly the direction that when I was on the my board that we dreamed of. You know, before I left in 2009 as chairman, before I left, I wanted to get two things going. One was the confidential counseling program. That was something Bill and I <clears throat> had talked about. It was actually Bill's dream and Bill's idea. He never was able to get it going. Well, we didn't have the money anyway. It wouldn't have mattered if he'd started it. We couldn't have paid for it. Um, and then the other thing was the Kevin James Endowment Fund, which probably that's my that hasn't quite panned out like we had envisioned. Uh, but I I know that there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, um, I. I guess if there was one thing, and I know there's some stuff going on uh, that I read about, the one thing that I uh, wanted to do before I left, and I see it's going to, like, I see that there's a couples retreat going on, um, and I don't know if that has anything to do with assist, but my point being, uh, I wanted to do something for couples and or families that was a positive thing, meaning there wasn't an immediate need, it was some way to help them build their relationships or their marriages and strengthen that because it everybody knows between the hours and call outs and what you see it's it's really really tough on relationships and marriages and so um i would i guess i it would be neat for me to see assist grow and more in that manner to benefit people when there's not really a immediate emergency need well, you know, more so than these guys, since I've been working here at the DPA for almost 10 years now and seeing the transition from, I'm going to say, the old guard with Glenn and all those guys, what I'm very proud of everything that's been done here and hearing you say these things about how proud you are, thing of your, us as your children, the growth has been exponential. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of counsel, you know, if you saw the counselor bill, how much money we, I think Justin just wrote checks today to, to pay the counselors for all this stuff. Because, you know, in the beginning, when the counseling started getting used, probably 03, right around the time you retired, we were very suspicious thinking these numbers can't be right, but officers were using it. And I think that, you know, we've had to make some adjustments there. We've added more cap. I think we're having counselors all the time. So you saw, you know, what we got going on. There's a lot of counselors on there now. But it's been great seeing the growth, and I, I, I'm really excited about that because I see what happens. And I, I thought about all you guys because Glenn was retired, Eddie was gone, you were gone. And as bad as 7-7 seven, seven was, you know, I, I think we were like a little beacon of hope knowing that the DPA and ATO was going to be able to take care of things. And I knew watching CNN and Fox and all these national news networks and seeing the DPA logo and the ATO logo, it's like, man, I hate that this fucking happened, but this is, you know, since then we've, we don't do anything the same anyway. I think everything, if you guys, I'm sure you've been here when we've done, it's just so totally different how we do things and what's going on that it's, it's probably what y'all envisioned. And I would hope to say even multiple 10 times when what's going on from when you guys first started. So it's, it's great. It, yeah. It's, I mean, to sit back and a, I talked to Frederick some. I mean, some people, you know, would think, oh, guys, you guys are probably talking every month. We don't talk like that. And most of the time, if we do chat, it's something with his family or kids or something. You know, we don't 
you know, and when Ed took over as chairman, of course, Ed came through the academy when I was there. I messaged him and hearing his story, I knew some of that, hearing it on the podcast. Um, you know, great to have his him as chairman of the foundation. Um, so, yeah, the, I, you know, I knew the counseling program. If we if we could get it set up and it could be confidential, that was the key. We we felt like myself, David, and Kim Mayfield met at my off duty job at Brahms for months and worked on that and worked on it. It's like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to be able to make this confidential? Because at the time, the the department had a psych services unit, uh, but to use that unit, you'd have to go to an office see a secretary, a civilian, you know, well, somehow it always leaked out, you know, oh, Tom Popkins going to psych services, he can't handle the plane crash or something. And it's like, so the result of that was, I'm not going to go because cops didn't want to be seen as not being able to handle it. So the end result was actually what you didn't want is I'm just not going to use it. And of course, then for a while, they, I don't know what they're doing now, but they forced you to go after a shooting. You know, you had to go for an eval or something, you know. Well, if you're forced to go, that's not really what you wanted. So we knew confidential counseling uh, was the key. And then, you know, the first counselors, some, some of the first counselors we picked are still involved, which I'm, I'm very, very proud of uh, for those people to uh, stay in there. and. Uh, you know, Dottie Claggett, uh, I think Dottie's still one of the counselors. You yep. know, she was huge. Of course, Dottie was, a, you know, a cop, a real cop, working narcotics, doing undercover work. She got it, you know. And it actually got to the point sometimes where we'd have a critical incident and an officer would say something to me and say, hey, somebody's going through a hard time. And I could call Dottie and say, would you cold call this officer? And she'd say, absolutely, you know. And uh try to get it started that way but the confidential counseling program was a was a big big thing for assist uh something you know another thing was alcohol you know in 1979 it's not something i'm proud of but you know alcohol was a big big part of the police department and it was for a lot of my career and that's not something i brag about it's just it is what it is you know and that's the way a lot of cops dealt with um, issues in their career. So happened you start talking about the counseling program. I, I have some numbers for just un, unrelated to this. I had to pull these the other day uh, just for a project. But going down, you talked about financials and you talked about counseling. So I'll start from 2017, post-2016. The ATO supported with $36,000 directly toward the counseling. These are all going to just be the counseling numbers. 2018, the fiscal year 2018, was 108,000. 19, 101. 20, right at 61. And so far, year to date, we're right at 60. So that that's a huge impact. You meet at Brahms, figure out something, and this is what you have later on down the road. That's awesome. So yeah. Thank you for all your work. No, I, you know, on, on one hand, I'm very proud of those numbers. On the other hand, you know, I kind of wish there wasn't that much need for it, but there is an, there is a need. Uh, but having said that, it's like when we talked about confidential counseling, it's like, 
we can't do this if we don't have the money. We somehow we got to get the money. And I remember when Bill started the golf tournament, the first one was down in DeSoto at can't remember the name of that country. Thorntree. Thorntree, yeah. And we had no food. We ordered pizzas there. We had no idea what we were doing. And people told Bill, this is never going to work. We're, we're never going to make any money out of this. And even by the time I left, the golf tournament was huge. It was by far our biggest fundraiser when I left. And I know it's grown exponentially since then, you know, which is, even when I was here, we talked about maybe having two, doing one in the spring, doing one in the fall. I mean, so yeah, it's, you know, all these great ideas like confidential counseling, you know, they're great ideas. It's like, okay, now we got to find the money to pay for it, you know. And having said that, you know, <laughs> to think back about, I mean, Judy and Bill Freeze, um, the East, if I tried to go back and name Julie Cassidy, all the people that stepped up to help at all of those events. If it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for cops volunteering at the Freedom Run, they got to volunteer to work traffic. If that didn't happen, there's really no money to be raised, you know. So all these officers stepped up to volunteer, and it's one of my wishes I thought of over the years. Is <clears throat> I did a little more towards the end, but in the beginning, I would take checks to families, and you know, I would get hugs, and you not that you're fixing the problem, but you're sort of assisting in the problem. It's like, you know, I wish people from Carry the Load or from the golf tournament could take checks to the families and they could get that feedback and they could see that appreciation and relief uh, to know that not just financially, but there was an organization that was there for them. Uh, that was is humbling and very, very rewarding and be nice for all these people that helped over the years to get some of that positive feedback from families. Historically, the DPD and the city just never really looked at like mental health for officers as a priority. Now we are. And there's several foundations that we're actually working with to, to grow this. We're not going to mention right now, but in the future, uh, we hope to uh, speak on some uh, future partnerships. But I want to take you back to the year, and we're shifting gears, but I want to take you back to the year of 1988 in Dallas and just how shitty of a year that was for law enforcement for this city, for DPD. How did that affect you? We lost five officers. Well, five officers in 88, but seven in a January to January. It spanned over into 89, so seven in, in a year's time. Yeah, it was... I mean, I can't even tell you how many great friends I had in patrol that that bailed, you know. And I mean, because at the time we didn't know. I mean, it literally felt like DPD officers were being hunted, you know. Um, and we went to mandatory two man. Uh, chief John Driscoll was our chief at Northwest Patrol. Just an unbelievable man, a leader, past leaders. Um, and people were so frustrated all over the department, you know, not knowing what's going on. I can remember he came into detail and he talked to us and, you know, several officers lashed out on him. I mean, they gave him some shit. I mean, bad. To the point of being disrespectful. And, man, the man stood up there and took it. And then at the end, he's like, okay, 
you guys take care of each other. You know, and I, I thought about it as like, what a leader. You know, he never lashed out. He never, and in the end, he won in that he got exactly what he wanted. And that's cops taking care of cops when you're out there. And yeah, that was a, that you know, up until 7-7, I was like, well, there'll never be a time like that again. And then 7-7 happens. You're like, oh my God, you know, all of this in one day, one single yeah. incident. You know? It was a very, very difficult uh, time. And, you know, like some of the funerals, you know, I mean, we had one. I don't remember if it was 80, but I can remember we had one, and the family wanted the officer buried in a uniform and gun belt and stuff, and the city was going to make the family pay for it. And we're like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this is just unbelievable. But in the Ron Escaro story, Chief Driscoll stood up for Ron. I mean, to think that this guy was critically injured, shot in the head, and you're going to throw him away like trash, it just, it was a hard, hard, bitter time. And people were very, and rightfully so, upset about that. And, of course, you know, the DPA filed a lawsuit, and then we got the, uh, you know, now we have positions on the department for officers that are injured, and there's spots for them to go to when that happens. That was a, that was a, a big thing. Yeah, to get injured serving the city and just get discarded uh, is, is sickening to think it's, about. It is sickening. It, it was gut-wrenching. I, I will say this, watching from afar in Colorado, <clears throat> the current mayor uh, and the Chief Garcia, the current chief, yep. you know, I, I don't know if he listens, but if he does listen, I'll be honest, I had no hope that DPD was going to get a chief when he put in that was going to, quote-unquote, rebuild the department. But I have some hope now from what I read. And I'm just, in a, I'm just now, I'm a citizen just watching and reading. But some of the mayor's comments, uh, Chief Garcia, some of the things that he's doing is like, you know what, I think the ship's starting to turn a little bit. And that's, I think, very comforting for every, because I think every retiree thinks DPD was the finest department in the country for a long long time and maybe we lost a hole in that number one spot and I but I think we can get back you're talking about the direction of the department and what you how you left and then what you see it now from afar I'm gonna try to take you back to your you talking to a recruit in the academy what would you tell a young officer right now starting this climate how to prepare to be better to serve the city of Dallas and protect themselves what would you tell them? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well, number one, of course, you got to take your training seriously. And we even talked about this in the academy. I don't know how they do it at the time but <clears throat> or now, but there was a time after you got sworn in and then the recruits would go back and load their weapons and, and load their magazines and stuff. And... As a DT instructor, a tactical instructor, you know, you would talk to them. It was like, look, everything, and they knew it, everything we've done in training is realistic because we tried to make it was not realistic. You knew when I was in the red man suit, you're not going to get hurt. In the end, you're not truly going to get hurt. Well, all that just changed. When you load that weapon, when you load those mags, now there is no more scenarios. Everything is real life. Uh, and prepare to the best of your ability. Um, you know, nobody does, I don't think, in police work, 
you don't do anything by yourself. And the best times are being in small units, whether it's in SWAT. Um, you know, we had a deployment unit when I was in patrol. And it was four of the best, there was five of, the four, five of the best cops that I knew. And it was so much fun and we depended on each other. So um, I guess I'd be just, you know, take your training seriously. And then in the end, do the right thing. I mean, do the right thing by people. And, you know, I'd stop people on traffic, a young person. I'd see myself going to college and, you know, I got stopped by the cops and I was college and by all rights, I probably should have been arrested and I wasn't. And had that officer arrested me, that was the end of my law enforcement career and it didn't happen. And, and I'd stop somebody else and I'd see my mom in the car. It's like, how do I want a cop? To treat my mother, you know, to take her out to eat in the <laughs> yeah, don't do that. And then now, you know, we, you know, doing big brothers, big sisters, my little brother, um, you know, my wife and I, we would take her to all these events around Dallas. He was seven years old when I met, and he'd be like, Do you know that cop there? And I go, Yeah, go over there and introduce yourself. So he'd walk right up, you know, and stick his hand out, and, and of course, cops love kids you know i mean you yeah. can't not love a kid you know and um so that would be take your training serious and be prepared to do the right thing chris webb you mentioned him earlier he his his episodes already hit and it was phenomenal he's a phenomenal guy he wanted you to speak on the big brother program yeah so when in 2009 when uh and i i want to say this too is I, I gave up assist the officer in 2009 i was getting towards the end of my career and i was looking for somebody to take over assist um, and almost everybody that i talked to about being on the board i mean i could pam star andy caceres frederick uh, a lot of people i'm missing were kids that i knew from day one in, in the academy and i knew their character and reputation on the department. And uh, so when Frederick came along, I was like, I, and I know Mindy and I talked about it, is like, it's time. This is the guy. It's time for me to get out of the way. We needed, I was getting along in the tooth on the department. We needed some young cop that had a good reputation to take it the next step. So anyway, I got up, you know, I passed the torch on to Frederick. So that, needless to say, freed up a lot of time, you know, and I, I, we'd never had kids. I always wanted to be a coach. It never worked out. So I got involved in Big Brothers Big Sisters program and uh, my little brothers, Sir Zedrick Coleman, uh, at the time they lived in Pleasant Grove. Um, and that's who I got assigned to. He was seven at the time that I got him. And uh, we just had him, him and as his brother up in Colorado at the house. He's 19 now, first one in his family to go to college. Uh, he's doing great. Um, it's a great program. You know, you talked earlier about people giving back to you. You know, I've learned more and Sir's given more to me than I've given to him. It's pretty, not just him, to see him and his little brother the young men that they are, raised by a single mom. You know, it's kind of a growing up, coming from a traditional family, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, I was always like, oh, 
that's what you got to have. If you don't have that kind of family, you can't raise good kids. You can't be a single mom or single dad. Well, she blew all that out of the water, you know. I mean, and it's hard. She, you know, she doesn't have a lot of money, you know. Uh, but she's got a lot of love and a lot of discipline and and uh, raised good kids. And, I, you know, I think that's the answer to all the crazy problems that are going around uh, is, you know, the world's going to be better for those two young men being in it. And if I'm, if Mindy and I are just a little bitty part of that, uh, I would encourage any officer to be involved in that program because uh, to to give back in that, you know, we well, Big Brothers Big Sisters had a Mavericks thing one time, a bowling thing, and I still have the pictures of it. You know, Sir's sitting on Dirk's lap, and Jason Kidd is there, and he's got this big smile. Is like, and all I did was take him. You know, these guys, you know, these basketball players, and they were very, very nice. All these kids, it's, it's, uh, that's been a really, really rewarding thing for me. I'm thankful to be a part of it. Love that. It, it's just so undescribable, the unbelievable people that I've met, not just in Dallas, but teaching throughout the country, a lot of cop friends up in New England. I mean, the character is just beyond anything that I can try to describe. And I, you know, I wish civilians could see it from our perspective as we see it day to day from our friends. And, <clears throat> and having said that, I, you know, I'm thankful to all of you uh, to sit back and see assist I mean, on 7-7, I knew a little bit about what's, you know, uh, tunnels to towers, donating, and the money that was coming in. It's like, well, if assist hadn't existed before 7-7, probably none of that would have ever happened. And to know now that uh, younger officers are coming up and supporting that organization and taking it beyond what our wildest dreams could have been is, is very very rewarding so thank you and and please everybody i don't even know who's all on the board anymore but thank them all for that and, and picking up the torch well we want to thank you for being on and you've been on the books to get on for a long time but you've been i didn't i did not want to do your episode on zoom unless just absolutely had to you one to play <laughs> I did, I, and I wanted everybody. Yeah, they would yeah. No, yeah. I was gonna. No, he told me he's like, "Well, your wife's a flight attendant. You can give me a free yeah. ticket." Yeah. Hey. Did you ride well, your Harley here? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank you for being you, and thank you for the path that you set for us to follow. Thank you for your service. Oh well, thank you. Uh, Thirty-four years of, you know, unbelievable joy and memories. Like all good cops, I did my fair share of bitching along the way. That's just part of it. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I tell people I only retired eight years ago. I think law enforcement has changed more in the eight years I retired than the 34 years I was in it, you know. Uh, so I'm proud of the people, not just in Dallas, all over the country, of what cops are doing every single day. Um, and I know that's not going to change. I know it's difficult. But organizations like assist and the dpa uh, supporting officers is more critical and more important than ever so thank you for uh continuing with that dream appreciate you coming on man
I'd like to get a I love part your two, podcast. When you're back in town, come back on. All right. Shout, I love shout out to Misty to Mindy getting to watch you here and all your facial expressions with the stories he's telling. It's been awesome. Well, she knows I only told about 25% of them, but that's okay. <laughs> Tom, I, I hope you know, and you sound like a very humble individual, a very grateful individual, but I hope you know just by sitting here and hearing this and the things I've heard about you in the past, I've, I've known of you as an officer when you were here. I never was fortunate enough to meet you. But uh, I hope you understand and know when you leave here today, if you don't know already, the impact you've had on not just the police officers on this police department, their families, uh, part of the program you're just speaking of, you know, you never know who they're going to touch. You know, a lot of we never get to hear that, but I want you to know, so you rest assured at night that you've done your job, and you continue to do it, obviously, but uh, just want you to know that. So thank you for everything you've done, whether you impacted me directly or indirectly, example of an individual. So I've uh, achieved much through the ATO, and I know of a lot of other people that have spoken on the things that you've done for them. So. Thank you, and I hope you know that when you leave here, the footprint and the impact you've left on individuals. And it resonates throughout our families. It changes, it transitions people. So just so you're aware of that. Thank you for those kind words. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mr. I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you I'll 
never give up on me.